is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. I sort of owe you an apology because I'm missing the very interesting discussion that you've had. I was busy in the House of Commons doing the day job, so I want to get my apology out of the way. You've been so busy. You've really been getting your money's worth out of that young person's rail card, haven't you? I've been travelling a lot. Yeah, I've been... I've been doing a lot of traveling. I've had some very nice conversations on trains, you know. I think it's because there are more people on trains now. Spoke to somebody's mum the other day, did a video message for somebody's nana today, spoke to someone's daughter. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a bit like Cameo, but no charge. Do you have a thing when somebody asks you to do a video message? Are you improving or do you have a thing in the back? No, basically, Jeff, I think the sort of the secret is really, it's almost like I'll say, I'll do a video message. <laughs> <laughs> It's not really, will you do a video message? It's, oh, my Nana really likes you. This is Robin today on the train from uh, Robin from Middlesbrough. Uh, my Nana really likes her. I'll do a video message, I said. <laughs> she was like, uh, okay. No, no one's turning down these video messages. No, actually, I did have somebody at Parkrun the other day say to me, um, oh, you know, I've heard you talk so many times on the podcast about Parkrun and... Uh, this is the first time I've done it. And now I've, you know, I've met you. And I said, oh, great. Do you want a selfie? No. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she said it very nicely. <laughs> so maybe it's over-enthusiasm. Do you know what I mean? What you must never do is if you make one of these video messages for someone, don't ask to watch it back because I'm just slightly worried that people aren't pressing the record. They're just pointing their phones at you to, to humour you. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true, and they just say it sort of got... Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And are you instigating many of these conversations on trains? Actually, in both cases, they sort of knew I was then, but didn't want to sort of say weren't sure and so on. So, And then we just got into mums, talking to mums, talking to daughters, etc. So you're available for ring-arounds? Yeah. I, I, it's, you know, it's always that thing I always felt... Uh, I think you do have really nice conversations with people on a train, don't you think? I don't, because I'm that person who's so terrified of getting stuck in a conversation for the duration of a train journey that I, I'll put headphones on or pretend to be reading something. Maybe it's part of my line of work. In fact, really, was really one of the people who worked for this company, his friend was an intern for Harriet Harman when I lost the election, and then when I then stood down as leader, I think he moved with Harriet into the office, the leader of the opposition's office. And I thought he was going to tell a really embarrassing story uh, about something he'd found, but he didn't. Not that I thought he knew. But something Not that he'd that, left in a drawer. No, no, he said, oh, we left in a drawer and it was some signed bottles of House of Commons whiskey. So it wasn't sort of, you know what I mean? It wasn't like dot, dot, dot. I don't know what it could be, but, you know. That's the thing that we're all now imagining. Well, I don't know, you know. God, I'm going to have to get myself out of this. It wasn't my pants is what I meant or anything. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've had an interesting week because you've done pick of the week. And, you know, for me, pick of the week is is like the – it's not exactly the song of my childhood because it's not a song. But, you know, it's the sound of my childhood pick of the week right on Radio 4. I was listening to pick of the week and they said, and next week Jeff Lloyd will be giving us his pick of the week. And I, I then texted you to say pick of the week has been going, was it 63 years, I think? 
Yes. I mean, that is quite standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, I know. I was too scared to look at who they'd asked to do it in the past. But, you know, I really enjoyed it because when I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of radio in my teens and early 20s. And I was obsessive about it. And then I've fallen out of the habit and, and podcasts have picked up a bit of the slack. But how lucky we are in this country, really, with BBC Radio, both in terms of the breadth and the depth of it. There was so much good stuff. And how, do you, how much help do you get? The backup is amazing. Uh, right. They send you a big list of stuff they think you might be interested I in. I see. But also, I just went through the schedules yeah. and picked out stuff. But um, I, can, I can tell you some of the things that I chose. Uh, there was a documentary about Mary Whitehouse that Samira oh, Ahmed yes. made. And... Um, it was really good because it wasn't any attempt at rehabilitation. Right. I don't know about you, but I I, I just remember her yeah. as being a punchline, really, yeah. or a spitting image puppet. And it made me think about how people, especially women, really, were never three-dimensional in the media. Oh, uh, interesting. And I thought it did a really good job of making her three-dimensional. Oh, um, there's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant. My favourite thing that I listened to was a programme about brass bands. It's a three-parter, the, the final part airs this week. Firstly, it just sounded amazing. Was it like, very it, moving? It can be very moving, those brass bands. Well, it, it was, but it was. It didn't feel, it didn't feel like brass bands are this anachronistic right. thing or yeah. it felt very contemporary, but it gave you such a good sense of the part they play in communities and the connection people get, often in quite difficult life circumstances. It was like the descriptions were brilliant on it. I loved that. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to a lot of radio. Well, I shall look forward to listening to your pick of the week. It's quite a privilege to be co-podcasting with somebody who does pick of the week. I can I can put a word in for you if you like. May <laughs> now, should we talk about what we're talking, what you're talking about? This week we're talking about energy storage. This is absolutely key when it comes to averting future energy crises. When it comes to integrating renewables, I mean, we've all heard the uh, what use is solar power when the sun's not shining, or wind turbines when there's no wind arguments. And we're going to look at where technology for storing energy is currently. And it's already come on so much in recent years. Uh, We're going to be hearing ideas for the near future, of which there are many. We'll be getting an overview from Gillian Ambrose, who is energy correspondent at The Guardian. Then uh, we're going to be hearing about how we're currently doing in the UK and where we could improve from Simon Skillings from the E3G think tank. And finally, We'll be talking to Nina Skorupska, who is CEO of the Association for Renewable Energies and Clean Technologies, about the many ideas for the future. Well, listen, I am really looking forward to listening. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, earlier today I passed somewhere and I thought, oh, that that looks perhaps not for me, but maybe my colleague Ed, the uh, the right honourable mm. gentleman, will will like this. And I, I just love that it existed. It's the UK's first climate themed escape room. Wow. It's just on for the month of March. It's in uh, Covent Garden in London. Wow. It's called Emergency, a portmanteau, I guess, of immersive and emergency. And it says, we want to capture the public's imagination and tip the political balance in favour of the necessary policies to tackle climate change. 
I fear this is like mastermind Boston Red Sox all over again, that you basically, you're kind of, this is a rope-a-dope, that I end up going to the escape room <laughs> to answer all the basic questions about the climate crisis, fail miserably to escape from the escape room. It then gives you fantastic material when you say to me, how did you get on at the escape room? You, you're, Or you have some kind of hidden camera filming me in the escape room. You then release a video along with the Icelandic thingamajigs, geothermals and the trampoline video i mean compromat call me call me call me sort of you know conspiracy theorist but i mean i think i think paranoid is perhaps the word on, yeah. on that one anyway anyway it was an innocent suggestion I, it was an innocent suggestion i know the Miliband family enjoy an escape room yeah what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful is that i i don't know whether you'll be impressed by this or not in fact let me just let me just see if i can send this to you oh here we go Wow. So you have a 50-game streak in Wordle, 100% wins. Your your most frequent number of guesses... Is four. uh, Is four, which I think is extremely respectable, uh, followed by three. And there's a couple of twos in there. Part of the genius of it is you want to keep that streak going. Yeah. I wonder whether the Wordle peak has slightly peaked... (laughs) No, no disrespect intended here, but you don't seem like one to follow trends. <laughs> Are you so, doing it every day, though? No, I, I, I keep forgetting about it yeah, and, and then not doing it, and then it's midnight. Um, you're not uh, on a streak. I'm not on a streak, no. Anyway, well, is a 50 streak good, do you think? I think, on one hand, to have uh, put in the dedication to do something consecutively yeah. for 50 days is it impressive and long way it continue. On the other hand... These things invariably lead one to ask the question, what am I doing with my life? It doesn't take that long. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to energy correspondent at The Guardian, Gillian Ambrose. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I, I'm fine, and, and thank you for carving out the time to talk to us because you're an extremely new parent. <laughs> I'm an extremely new parent, but it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, interruptions or emergency feedings or nappy changes, we, we can accommodate those. So I will let you know. <laughs> do that. Um, I, I wondered if I could start with like an idiot's guide, and, and I'm very much the idiot in this situation. So I've never really given that much thought to the stages between energy generation and it coming out of my sockets or, or the hob. So can I tell you how I have it in my mind and, and you can tell me how far off I am? Yeah, yeah, okay. let's start there. So, so with electricity, I think of the um, power stations as being like someone on a bike with a dynamo and, and they're pedalling and then it comes via the national grid into my kettle. And if you've got a situation like the adverts during Coronation Street where lots of people need electricity in their kettles, the, the, the power station somehow pedals faster. So in that situation, I, I don't think of storage as being that much of a factor. And then with gas, I, my idea is that we used to have these big gasometers all over the place. Then it started coming down a pipe from Russia. So they, they think about storage at their end now, and we don't have so many of those anymore. How close to the truth is that? It's not as far as you might think, Jeff. It's... <laughs> I think in your in your peddling scenario with electricity generation, that's more or less how it works. You get a lot of 
giant power plants quite far flung away from the centres of high electricity demand like cities and and major suburbs. And uh, if you need more, then the national grid operators will more power plants to to pedal faster, to to use the metaphor. And uh, similarly with gas, yeah, we don't have as much storage as a lot of European countries. And that's largely because we used to have this giant backdoor reserve in the North Sea. So we would get our own gas direct from off the coast of Aberdeen. And there was never this this need to secure our own storage. Um, But increasingly, I think we're seeing with the energy crisis that storage would be very useful at the moment, both in terms of the gas that obviously we use to heat our homes and to power our power stations, but also the the electricity that's being generated um, across the country. Increasingly, it's not necessarily coming from power plants. We're seeing a lot coming from wind farms, solar farms. And um, wouldn't it be great if we could always have maximum electricity from those renewable energy sources, regardless of whether the wind is blowing or the sun is shining? So, yes, yeah, storage is a, an overlooked element of the um, energy system, but increasingly important. And that is one of the kind of yes buts that you hear from people when we talk about renewable energy. Yes, but what if the sun's not shining? Yes, but what if it's not windy? So can you give us sort of the potted history of how that's been in the past, where we are now and what it could look like in the future? Well, the technical limitations of renewables in terms of storing it and, and when we use it and when it's available has always been a bugbear for certain parts of um, the media and certain factions of the political sphere. And they're not wrong to point out that this is a problem. We talk a lot about, or we used to talk a lot about how wind farms would be paid to turn off sometimes if there was too much wind and not enough uh, demand for electricity. You don't want to overwhelm the grid. So you would actually have a lot of quite high lucrative payments being paid to renewable generators to not produce clean electricity, which sounds completely mad. That's not how it has to be. There's a lot of um, really exciting, really innovative ways that the national grid operators and energy companies are beginning to tackle these kinds of problems. And if we come on to some of the future technologies in a second, just to give us a picture of how things are now, if we were uh, paying people to turn off the turbines, what's it like now? Because battery technology is very different to what it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a lot of big wind farm developers at the moment fitting lithium-ion batteries, what you think of when you think of a battery. And those are becoming quite standard in new projects. They're also being fitted to old projects. And for those giant offshore wind farms, this is really exciting because you can store the electricity that's generated, say, overnight when we don't need it. That's easily the, the dominant side of energy storage at the moment. The thing to keep in mind with energy storage, though, is that a lot of the technological breakthroughs that are necessary has actually been really recent. And it's been much like the solar power fall in costs. Once China gets involved, then everything's happening at scale and costs can absolutely plummet. So it'll be great. What what we're coming up to now is the point where those two things converge. And we're, we're seeing the falling price of batteries catching up with the falling price of renewable energy. But th- there are also a lot of really interesting ways that people are starting to um, look at more innovative tech to effectively store energy. 
That sounds like I'm being quite mysterious. <laughs> well, no, I mean you've, you've got us. You've got us on tenterhooks now. And I, I read a piece you you wrote about this, so I, I guess it, it, we transition to an episode of uh, Tomorrow's World here. So, <laughs> talk to us about some some of these big ideas. Some of them are infrastructure ideas. Some of them are, are, are things that people can uh, have in their own houses. But what are the Front runners. Yeah, this is all caveated with these won't necessarily be helping us out next winter. I, I think it's important to say that. But it is still very exciting when we think about what the future could be like. One of my favorite things is, um, I suppose, what we could call gravity storage. And this is a twist on the old hydropower um, plants, which have been powering the, the UK grid for decades and decades. But the idea is quite simple. You use electricity when you have it, when it's abundant, to move something up. And then when you need the energy back, you drop whatever that something is that you've raised. They're doing all kinds of interesting things with that idea. And there's ways to use a different kind of fluid, not water, something enriched with minerals to make it more, to have more sort of gravitational pull. So you don't need a very steep gradient. You can have a gentle hill. You could have something embedded into the hill that you never see. Uh And running down through that hill, you could suddenly be creating electricity. And then there's more crude, but really fun uh, things that are being done with disused mine shafts. You can hoist up a giant weight when there's loads of electricity around. And then (laughs) <laughs> let it drop hundreds of meters into the center of the ground, which will turn the turbine, which will create the electricity. It's quite fun. And there's so much of it could come from our own homes. If you think about your electric vehicle, if you're lucky enough to have one, that is effectively a mobile battery. So you can charge up um, overnight when we don't need so much electricity. And then the electricity stored in your car could be released just a little bit. Nothing that you'd notice at about six in the morning when everyone uh, starts to wake up. And that alone could almost create a power plant. So imagine if you could take that same principle and apply it to your electric heat pump, if you have one in your home. And all these things are quite fun. And you, as a consumer, might want to get involved because I think energy tariffs that are going to be emerging will be making it financially in your best interests to be taking these sorts of things up. You could actually earn money from not using um, electricity for a few seconds, a minute, you know, here and there throughout the day. It's all algorithms. It's all in the background and you wouldn't have to think about it. These things would just be happening and quietly saving us all huge amounts of money, huge amounts of carbon emissions and helping to get us closer to that goal of having a net zero carbon economy. What I love about some of these ideas is that they're kind of quite mechanical. They remind me a bit of, I don't know, Rube Goldberg machines or these kind of national competitions to figure out long-winded ways to boil an egg. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are my favourite, probably because they're so much more relatable and accessible if, if, you know, like me, you're not an electrical engineer. But there are some really kind of high tech and um, things that are going on as well. Solar farms that can concentrate electricity and store it as heat in molten salts. But for some areas of the world, maybe not the UK, but major desert areas, for example, that could be a huge game changer as well. It's not just storing solar power, it's 
many magnitudes greater than that. And then when you're dealing with that kind of scale, maybe it wouldn't be so crazy to have a giant power cable, say, from a desert in North Africa through to Europe. So there are ways of taking either really high-end approaches to this challenge and then also, yeah, just really clever, simple things as well. Another one of my favorites, Jeff, I just have to let you know, is uh, supermarket fridges. Go on. I mean, think about that. So your fridge is, you know, you want to keep that at a level temperature. So you're basically storing electricity as coolness. And if National Grid said, oh, Tesco, would you mind, um, you know, sparing us X amount of electricity? You could sort of roll a little pause through the fridges in your national network of sort of rolling domino effect of quick temporary outages could just flicker across the country and in total save the national grid a little bit of extra electricity so that they don't have to fire up their gas plant. And I just think that's quite cool. There's brilliant ideas out there. And I'm just thinking with the need to decarbonise, is there a point on energy storage that the government needs to think about which horse it wants to back? Is there a big infrastructure project that needs rolling out on this? I think in some ways, the beauty of energy storage is that it bucks that old trend of wanting to have a giant monolithic energy infrastructure project with the politicians in high-vis jackets and, and snipping of ribbons. It doesn't need to be big and shouty. There will be some big shouty things. And for that, I think we turn to green hydrogen, which is... Um, something that we we talk a lot about because it's basically a gas that you could burn, like the gas we use today in our homes and in factories and things like that, but it doesn't produce um, carbon emissions. It's made from renewable electricity and water. So it's really, really clean. You could make loads of green hydrogen during the summer using solar power when there's lots of it around and keep that stored until winter so if you do want a big ribbon snipping moment, green hydrogen would be, I think, the one to look for on the energy storage front. And what are the ways in which that isn't a silver bullet? I think the problem with green hydrogen is that it is expensive. And I think as well, it's going to take some time for the UK to have the infrastructure available to, to be taking on these projects. Scale and pace are so often the problem with major energy developments and, and storage is, is no different. In a lot of the questions I've asked you, I'm thinking about energy as a domestic consumer. How much does this issue of energy storage impact on industry in the UK? It's a big deal, especially at the moment with the energy crisis. It's going to prove terminal for a lot of businesses. Those businesses that use a lot of energy are right at the sort of knife edge of the crisis. There's no price cap for them. So they are staring down the crisis with very little protection. What we're also seeing is a lot of um, big businesses tend to invest themselves in storage and have been doing so already. Again, quietly, but it's in their financial interest to be doing so. So we do see um, big businesses getting involved and that's major heavy industry steel makers to tech companies, which obviously run their um, servers on um, and which require a lot of um, electricity. So for those companies, there's a strong financial incentive to invest directly in their own renewable energy generation and alongside that storage as well. 
Gillian, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time out and explaining all that for us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. To talk to us about where we are in the UK on all this stuff and, and perhaps where we could or should be, we are joined by Simon Skillings from E3G, which is a climate change think tank. Hello, Simon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Can you lay out for us why it's important for the UK to be investing in renewable energy storage? Well, quite simply, we can't decarbonise the energy system unless we have that technology available. There are a whole series of aspects to meeting our next zero targets, but decarbonising the energy system is absolutely front and centre in terms of what we need to achieve. And the trouble is, we have an energy system that was designed decades ago on a fundamental principle, which was the expectation that consumers, you, me, can't change when we actually need energy. We need energy, we press the light switch, and the energy system has to provide it there and then. And that was how that energy system was designed. It was designed where effectively the old storage was contained in fossil fuels. We used to keep stores of fossil fuels and then we used to have power stations that would produce energy whenever uh, we needed it. Now, of course, as we move to renewables, then that simply can't happen. We've got to move off fossil fuels. But the problem with renewables is they produce energy when the wind's blowing, when the sun's shining, and so not necessarily at the time that we actually need it. And in order to address that, we need to change our energy system. Now, there are what I call the sort of holy trinity of solutions to that. First, we need to digitalize. We need to move our energy system into the 21st century and create markets that allow consumers like you and me to very easily shift when we actually use our energy in a seamless and painless way. The second is to create energy superhighways that enable us to trade energy across large geographical areas. But the third aspect is the issue of energy storage. Well, it sounds like we could do whole episodes on the other two elements. But just to focus on energy storage, we've heard that perhaps we have lagged behind on giving any kind of thought to energy storage. What score would you give the UK now on prioritising this storage? Well, oh, that's a difficult question. I would like, as all good school teachers do, I would like to separate my scores for effort and achievement. And I would actually quite applaud the government for the effort that they're putting in and maybe seven eight out of ten for that but the reality is we're making very little progress in those areas that will enable us to achieve a deep decarbonization of the energy system we've done the easy things we've got rid of coal we've put a certain amount of renewables on the system we need to have we need to go harder and faster so I'd say probably on achievement, we're probably trailing around three or four. So, so let's then think about that effort and where it could be applied then to achieve better outcomes. Well, with energy storage on a renewable-based energy system, there are really two different sorts of challenges. 
how do we actually use storage to put aside the energy when people aren't using very much and then release it at the times of day or the times of week when people are using it a lot. Now, all the the three solutions that I mentioned earlier come to play in that part. And there are a lot of storage technologies that are already well in development that will tackle that issue. Uh, These are the sort of traditional uh, lithium-ion batteries, the sort of things that that many of us are now, uh, those of us that are lucky enough to have electric vehicles, many of them have in our cars. So those technologies are moving forward fast, but I'm afraid there's another problem that's far more difficult, and that is what is termed the renewable drought. Unfortunately, the sort of short-duration battery technology that we're very familiar with isn't going to be effective in dealing with those situations, and that's a challenge that could really put the brakes on our ability to decarbonize the energy system. There are technology options out there. Perhaps the most promising of all of them is using hydrogen. Hydrogen can be produced from excess renewable energy during the summer through electrolyzers. That hydrogen can be stored in big quantities, in large tanks until the winter, and then it can be used in gas turbines in the same way that methane and fossil gas is used now and can provide potentially power for long periods of time. But I have to say that those long-duration storage technologies are still in their infancy and aren't economic such that they can be deployed at the, the sort of scale that would enable the UK to be powered for two or three weeks during the winter. And is that effort in terms of resource for research and development and um, getting those technologies to a point that they could be rolled out as major infrastructure? Yeah, part of the problem, if you have a long-duration storage technology, current energy markets pay you when you produce energy. Well, if you really don't know when the next winter doldrum is going to come, it might not come next year, it might not come for three, four years that then becomes a very risky investment proposition. And you need to find ways to actually encourage investment in these technologies, but also further upstream. Now, hydrogen is perhaps the one exception where there is being a lot of effort put into that. Perhaps the problem with hydrogen is there's a lot of talk about using hydrogen to heat our homes and and, and to replace the gas that we use in our homes. Well, anyone who has done any simple thermodynamics knows that is hugely inefficient way to use our energy. And if we can possibly use electric technologies like heat pumps to heat our homes, that's far better. So if I ask you to take your crystal ball and think on behalf of of people listening to this podcast, will the changes in energy storage be things that happen as big infrastructure projects like the building of dams, or would it be things that happen in our own homes? Will it be having a Tesla battery pack in my kitchen? Yeah, sure. And remember, going back to my uh, description of there being two real sorts here, there's the sort that can smooth out within day or within week 
fluctuations in energy and then there's the stuff that can put aside huge amounts of energy for a long period of, of time. I've absolutely no doubt that the sort of the ongoing market innovation processes as companies develop new products and services for consumers, then actually storing energy will become an integral part of the way we uh, use energy in our homes. So these things are progressively beginning to happen. And it is really interesting that you talk about the crystal ball. Um, for sure, I mean, I think there's a sort of a, a, a basic human instinct that likes the idea of being quite self-sufficient in energy. We all get a bit spooked by all this stuff that's going on in geopolitics and whatever over which we've no, got no control. And we've suddenly, I drove past the petrol station yesterday and the price of oil had went up each time by about two or three P. And to have, to, to think that you can be a bit self-sufficient in your energy and perhaps not to the extent that you want to unplug yourself from a grid, but you can be pretty self-sufficient is, is quite reassuring. And storage is absolutely integral to that. So I'm quite confident that it is going to be part of a, a package of technologies that make people's lives better and make people more at comfort with the way they're using energy, make things more convenient, and importantly, make things cheaper. The way the energy market is looking at the moment, that's something uh, people can feel optimistic about. Simon Skellings, thank you so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure. We're going to finish by talking to Chief Executive of the Association for Renewable Energies and Clean Technologies, Nina Skorupska. Hello. Oh, good morning. I've, uh, I've been nosing around your Wikipedia entry. And uh, it's, it's quite something. I mean, I don't mean to embarrass you here, but in 2016, named as one of the uh, top 50 women in engineering, uh, awarded the CBE for services to renewables and equality in the energy industry, first woman power station manager in the UK for RWE, and influenced by Star Trek to oh, study yes. astrophysics. That was something. <laughs> So is, is running a power station, is it closer to being Scotty on the Enterprise or is it closer to being Homer Simpson? <laughs> oh, definitely Scotty, I hope. I am a, a scientist and an engineer. And, and whilst I didn't press the buttons in the control room, I had a fantastic team who knew the ins and outs of that. It was a very proud achievement in my career at that time to be responsible for one of the newest power stations in the UK at that time. And and we've been talking uh, in these conversations so far in the episode about the challenges around renewable energy storage in the UK. What I'd like from you is a bit of optimism. Where, where do the opportunities lie? Oh, I, I'm glad you're talking to me about energy storage because for the last you know six seven years we've been really excited about the developments, how all the different forms of energy storage. So I mean. We used to do energy storage uh, before we ripped out and all the hot water tanks in people's homes as we went before we went to combi boilers. So that was your basic view. But I think now when people think about energy storage, they think of batteries and uh, how they're integrated in people's homes, particularly people who've got homes with solar panels, so that the usual phrase of, you know, the sun's only going to shine for certain times of the day, of course, how do we capture that lovely renewable power and store it in a battery in our homes? 
So the optimism there is that prices have come down. People are a lot more aware of these opportunities. So lots of optimism, but yeah, we've got a lot more to do. And when we think about the future of storage, is it on a a domestic level? Is it what will be fitted to our houses? Or are we thinking of grand infrastructure projects, you know, on on the scale of, say, you know, reservoirs during the Industrial (laughs) Revolution? Yesterday, I wore my favourite jumper, which has an anthesan on it. And when I stood in front of a, a crowd of fantastic farmers who were excited about how to combine renewable energy and uh, food production on their land, we always get asked these either or. It's an and. We need all the different scales. And we talk to government and talk to our members about how do we roll out and, and allow people in their homes to benefit. But also, we know that there are some major investments that we need to do to enable larger scale. Things like pumped hydro, which I think everybody's a little bit aware is when we when the power is cheap, we pump up the water into a reservoir. And then when the grid needs it to provide stability to the system, we can let that water go and it drives the, the conventional turbines. And using water in its movement because of gravity, either down a hill or through a a tunnel to to drive a a turbine, which then makes the electricity. So that's, we've had that for quite some time and we've got small scale and larger scale, but there are other forms of thermal and other gravimetric, you know, using gravity, like using big weights or compressing air when the power's cheap. And then when we need that, we let that air or gas expand rapidly and then that drives a turbine and makes electricity again. So those are the larger scale exercises and we've got members who are looking at developing those projects as well. And the government are interested in in, in applying those now. But back at the home piece, people who are going to be investing in electric vehicles are also going to be having energy storage. That's just mobile storage instead of thinking about static storage, which could be batteries fitted in somebody's garage or somewhere else in their home or somewhere in a building complex or regional or even, you know, providing resources against a massive solar farm as well. So all scales, Jeff, absolutely. That's very interesting. I'd I'd not thought about the electric vehicles being storage. There's some kind of parallel, I guess, with how parts of the internet work in that the internet's case, it's information that's passed out across all these different computers. Honestly, this is quite exciting. It's not 100% there yet. This is called vehicle to grid. So instead of just the flow of power from people's home charge points or business uh, charge points or public charge points, charging up a car when you need it, remember your car's going to be parked 90% of the time and therefore it could be connected back to your home or your or the grid's infrastructure and therefore the power can flow from your battery. You made a really good uh, analogy, Jeff, because tech and data management has been absolutely key for unlocking all of this potential of how we bill or 
benefit people for doing the right thing at the right time with their energy in whatever they've got, whether it's a static battery or a mobile battery in their car. I appreciate what you said about the ampersand, and I also appreciate that you're um, representing an, an association here. But obviously, we're in this race to decarbonize mm. in the country. Is there one area, maybe, or a couple of areas that the government would be well advised to put more emphasis? Well, I always start, even though, and you know, I'm the chief executive of renewable energy and clean technology, is around energy efficiency. First of all, you must have heard this phrase, what's the cheapest form of energy and the cleanest form of energy? It's the negawatt, the one that we don't use, whether it's heating our homes or powering them. So that's absolutely the foundations. And then after that, for me, it's all about getting the regulatory landscape to enable people power to participate in how they choose to use their energy. I mean, not everybody is as enthusiastic, maybe, as myself or anybody else around looking at how we can get renewables. So how do we engage everybody to understand that? And I think the excitement around electric vehicles might start to open up their mind. So we are working very hard to get that market structure, the regulations, being able to connect our homes in the right way to our grid infrastructure. Because at the moment, our grid infrastructure was designed for power flows to go one way, from a big power plant that I used to run to people switching on the lights or powering whatever they want to do with their lives. Now we need it to be able to move in both directions. And some of the rules are not there yet, and we have to work hard. But also, we've got some amazing organizations using tech to allow people not to think, oh, somebody's just going to benefit from my solar power that all the panels I've got on my house. Actually, there's some really great companies who are going to say, look, let us manage your power in your home or your business, and we'll enable you to make money out of it as well as doing the right thing from a net zero point of view. How much appetite is there in the existing UK energy industry for this kind of change? I there's massive appetite. Lots of different people are on different stages of this energy transition. It takes people to be more aware and then realize what it might mean for them personally in their home, in their families, and then the job opportunities. So we've got to work away that the energy system, we can make it as simple as possible for us to change to protect people, but allow businesses to flourish when they do want to look at solutions for net zero. And batteries is a key one for it and electric vehicles. Tell us a little bit more about battery technology. So I think the people will have heard about lithium ions and the kind of batteries that have overtaken our traditional view of what we think a battery in a car was, which is a lead acid one. So it has actually been the EV developing market, electric vehicle development market on battery technologies that have driven the capability to have batteries that have long lives, can be recharged on and off, and also even innovatively using old batteries from within cars because they come in cassette size to be then used in people's homes. 
So there is a whole burgeoning market that is not only looking at building more and more batteries. People have heard of the Tesla Gigafactory. So it's about how do we get more and more of the other suppliers other than Tesla, and we've got lots of members who do that, who can provide that kit to go into people's homes. So lithium iron is the current winner, but we've got members looking at other chemistries, other technologies for the small scale batteries, but then for the larger energy storage, there's a whole plethora of different scales. The market of tomorrow, even as 2023, 2025, we're going to have so many different ways of ensuring that security and batteries will play a large role in that, as well as I said, electric vehicles too. When you look around the world, are there any countries that you think do a particularly good job of thinking about these future technologies and the shifts to energy storage? Well, we do a review actually every year as a trade association just to hold up a little bit of a mirror to our government to say, you know, when we say we want to be leaders in everything, is this just because we're leaders in funding R&D or doing pilots and demonstrations? For this whole sector to really take off, we need sustained market models and so on and so forth to allow the technology to play their different parts, you know, paying people in the right way and encouraging them to do the right things with their kit. So I would probably identify the Scandinavian countries like Norway and Denmark, who have already developed these markets that reward people and businesses and systems that provide this flexibility of being able to move our power where we, when we need it and rewarding people with value. I'm sure I will ask that question <laughs> about international examples and somebody will reply with something other than the Nordic countries, but I think it's yet to happen. I mean, if, if they are a smaller nation than us and fleet of foot and so can maybe roll out uh, different market models. But there are three things that lead to a positive energy transition. One is having the technology and is the nation funding and welcoming it and understanding it. So take on that. Having a, a government and a regulatory framework which allows those models of technologies engaging with it also in play. And also then putting in the actual physical infrastructure, so the wires, the grid and everything else like that, to uh, allow all of this to be rolled out at pace. We tick out of scores of fives. We've given twos and threes to the UK government on this. That's not my view. That's actually the view of investors and developers who could choose to do this investment and development in any of the nations. So when they look at the UK, perception is as truthful as, as reality when it comes to actually people parting with their money and investing in our systems. We're doing great guns. There's, we've got a smart system and flexibility plan that is really being acted on, but it's still only a plan. And it's still only demonstration and uh, a series of different little projects all over the place. We need to connect that all up and make it happen for real. 
So if we were to appoint you, Nina, as um, uh, Minister for Energy, you have carte blanche. What's the first thing you do on day one? Well, first of all, I would do the energy efficiency thing. I would turbocharge and get people to insulate our poorly insulated homes, not expect people to have to foot that upfront bill. So that's my number one. And I would always say that. Number two is really get the smart, flexible market going and really unleash the full potential of our capable data, tech, technologies, grid, policy. That's what I would get everybody in a room, bang their heads and say, come on, let's get on with it. Brilliant. Well, I have to say, I found it very inspiring talking to you and you alluding to all these things that your members are working on and the emerging technologies sounds really exciting and a cause for optimism. Nina Skorupska, thank you so much. Thank you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. So I think I need your, not exactly sartorial advice, but swimming advice, which is I've got a big decision coming up, which is when do I abandon my swimming hat, gloves and socks? Because the weather is warm, isn't it? Well, you say you say warm. I mean, I, I would still need to be, I don't know, wear, wearing some kind of um, wetsuit made full, out of a duvet. You need the I need full it to have a tog rating thing. and a very high tog rating at that. Have you thought about just dropping those items in increments until you're just left in your socks? I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. I'll keep wearing the trunks. And also I think drop is a bit sort of, it feels a little bit unfortunately sort of suggestive i just think yeah yes. shed i still think shed strip no 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 i'm um, to find the uh, discard the right no. discard <laughs> uh yeah uh choose not to wear perhaps why use one word? exactly exactly yeah. when four will do so we should thank our guests yes i think i'll leave that to you yes thank you to Gillian ambrose simon skillings and nina skorupska Emma Caution produces all the audio for our podcast, all the backup and research. It was courtesy of Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Pick of the Week. He's been Ed of the Train. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Mm-hmm.